All right. Well, cool. Hey, thanks for uh, staying connected to our online weekend experience. And, uh, you know, I, I do hope uh, we, our whole team hopes that your family's doing well. And uh, I also just want to say if you're new to Grace or maybe, you know, you kind of stumbled on the website or someone shared this with you, I want to say thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to, uh, to Grace. My name's Tony. I'm, I'm the campus pastor here at uh, the Medina East Campus. And I want to let you know that if you are just joining us, you're actually catching us uh, kind of towards the end of a series that we've been in for the past several weeks uh, that we have been calling Review. And uh, basically what we've been doing in this conversation is, you know, we've been saying that we, uh, we kind of live in a time where as a society, uh, we kind of review everything. And, and I think we've all seen this, right? We review products, we review uh, music and movies and restaurants and pretty much anything you can review, uh, we will do that. And, uh, and while, of course, I think, you know, there's a lot of advantages to that for sure. What we've been saying is that what happens sometimes is, and, you know, it just happens to all of us, is that we'll take this kind of review mentality and we will oftentimes import that into the way that we interact with the church, right? That, uh, that sometimes we'll have expectations or we'll have opinions or we'll have preferences of what we think the church should or shouldn't be. And we said it's kind of natural. It's kind of a natural thing that, that happens to all of us. But in the series, what we're doing is we're actually maybe asking a more important question. And uh, the question that we're trying to ask together is this, is, hey, if Jesus was to review his church, right? Like, what would, what would he say? What would, his, um, what would Jesus' expectations, his opinions, his desires, and his vision for his church, church be? And, uh, and really, in the series, that's kind of what we're after. And we're kind of saying this. We're saying... Uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, which I, I know, of course, that not everyone who's connected to this right now maybe is a follower of Christ. Maybe you're investigating Christianity or you're trying to figure that out, uh, which, by the way, we're, we're so glad. We count it a privilege that you'd let us be part of that. Uh, we've been saying that for those of us who do follow Jesus, we're trying to figure out what is his vision for the church so that we can kind of pursue that uh, together. And so what we're doing is we're actually looking at the one place in the Bible where we actually see Jesus Christ giving his review of the church. It's a really fantastic passage. The passage we've been going to is actually in the book of Revelation. I'd encourage you, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that? And if you would just flip over to Revelation chapter 3, that's where we're going to be finding ourselves here today. We're going to be kind of picking up where we left off a little bit over the past several weeks, which, by the way, you can catch those if you want to on our website, on our YouTube channel, or uh, I think even on our podcast. And so Revelation 3 is where we're going to go here today. And um, as you're... um, Getting to Revelation chapter 3, just a, a kind of a reminder, or if you missed this, uh, just, just to kind of let you know, what we see in this passage is we actually see Jesus addressing uh, these seven ancient churches. And uh, this passage is actually sometimes called the seven letters to the, to the seven churches. And so all we've been doing in this series is really just kind of working one by one through those different churches. So, so far we've looked at five of the churches. Today we're going to come to this sixth church. It's a church in a place called Philadelphia. So here's what I want to do. I actually want to read the whole letter. It's a pretty short letter. And then uh, after I'm done, we'll kind of cycle back. And my hope is that we can make some observations and, and hopefully make sense of, uh, of some of what Jesus says here in this passage. So let's read the whole thing together, starting off in uh, verse 7. Here is what Jesus writes. He says, uh, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet 
and acknowledge that I have loved you. Uh, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so there's the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Why don't we, why don't we do this? Why don't we just pray real quick together? And then we'll, uh, like I said, we'll circle back and try to make some, some sense and some observations about this passage. Let's, let's pray. Well, uh, well, God, I just want to come before you and uh, I want to say thank you that you have preserved for us just this letter that you have written to the churches. And so, uh, Jesus, I do ask you that as we enter into even this conversation that you would, um, you know, we just, I know I could speak for myself and, and maybe for those who are watching right now, God, we just want to come with expectancy, uh, believing that uh, what you said here are, are your words and we want to know your heart. And so, I pray that you would help us to uh, open our ears, open our minds, and open our lives to, to what you'd have to say to us. Give us ears to hear. And I want to ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and just start. We'll begin here in verse 1. And you'll notice, like in the other letters, he starts by addressing a specific church in a specific region. He talks to this church in Philadelphia. Uh, so let me give you a little background on, on this city in which this church was located. Um, so this city, Philadelphia, if, if you were to look at it on a map, uh, you would know that it's not, not the Philadelphia in uh, Pennsylvania. It is actually the Philadelphia that's in ancient Turkey. And so this is a very simple map that we've been looking at of ancient Turkey. These are the seven churches that were written that, uh, that, that, uh, that Jesus addresses. And this is the church in Philadelphia. It would have been kind of located here. And a couple things we know about it. Uh, we know that Philadelphia was actually founded by uh, this guy who was the king of a place called Pergamum. His name was Attalus II. And the reason that this city was called Philadelphia uh, is because history tells us that at one point, uh, the Romans actually tried to turn Attalus, the the king of Pergamum, away from his brother, who also was a political leader. Uh, But Attalus remained fiercely loyal to his brother. And so that actually earned him the nickname Philadelphius, which some of you might know means brotherly loyalty or means brotherly love. And so Philadelphia as some of you know, is the city of brotherly love, just like it is in Philadelphia out in, uh, in Pennsylvania. So kind of the same idea. Uh, something else that's really unique about this, this, this spot is that Philadelphia was agriculturally a very, very fertile place. In fact, I'll just show you a picture. This is one of the, the spots where there's still ancient ruins uh, in this city. Uh, today, it's not called Philadelphia anymore. It's actually called uh, Al-Shahir. It's in modern-day Turkey. But you can even just tell by looking at this picture, it is a very fertile, it is a very lush place. Uh, in fact, they're actually known for their vineyards that they have there. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that people know today about Al-Shahir or uh, ancient-day Philadelphia, it's actually known for its Turkish raisins. And so, I, I don't know if that's interesting, but that's just something that's real, very fertile. The reason it was fertile is because it had volcanic ash that really helped things kind of grow more rapidly. However, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you probably, maybe you're putting this together, the presence of volcanic ash indicated that there were also volcanoes around here. There's a lot of volcanic activity that happened. And so as a result of that, there actually was very frequent and often very devastating earthquakes that took place in this region of the world. And still to this day, there still are devastating earthquakes uh, that happen on a somewhat frequent basis here. 
And so actually the people who would have lived in this city, uh, they actually lived in a state of almost perpetual fear. Uh, we know that whenever an earthquake struck, the people of Philadelphia would flee the city. And then after the aftershock subsided, they would actually come back and they would move into the city. And so literally the people of Philadelphia were always going out and they were always coming in. They were always fleeing and returning to the city. In fact, some people out of fear left the city every single night. So every night they would leave the city because they were afraid of an earthquake and they would come back. And uh, the reason I think that's important is because I think that actually makes some of Jesus's promises at the end of this letter very meaningful to the church. I don't know if you were paying attention when we were reading that passage, but like in verse 12, Jesus talks about a new city that he's going to give to them, a city in which they never again will have to leave. Like that language would actually meant a lot to these people, these Christians who would have lived uh, kind of in this area. One other thing I want to let you know about this place is we know that the church that was in, uh, was in the city of Philadelphia was actually a very small church compared to the other churches that we've been studying. Probably was the smallest congregation of them all. And yet, what I think is so cool is Jesus has really some of the greatest things to say about this church. And so uh, look back in verse one, he actually starts with an introduction. So he says to the, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? And then he introduces himself. These are the words of him who is holy and true. And then this is interesting. Notice what he says. He says, who holds the key of David what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. All right, so that might seem kind of strange to us. So what's he talking about there? What is the significance of, of uh, Jesus introducing himself this way to this church? Well, uh, what, I, what I hope you can see, what I want to show you, is that I actually think there is a lot of significance behind Jesus introducing and identifying himself this way. Um, so uh, you, might, you might not know this, but these folks that Jesus is writing to back in this time, would have been a group of people who were very, very, very familiar uh, with, and they would have been very well acquainted with the Old Testament of the Bible. And so when Jesus says this, that he is the one who holds you know, the key to David and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open, that actually would have been a direct reference and a direct citation to something that these folks would have been familiar with. And what he's quoting from is actually quoting from a passage in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 22. Now, you don't need to flip there, but I actually just want to show it to you real quick. So here, here's what it says in Isaiah 22. Uh, God says, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So you can see it is almost verbatim what Jesus says. So clearly, Jesus is quoting from this passage. So that begs the question, what is this passage talking about, Right. And uh, so let me kind of give you a little bit, not too much context on this, but this, this passage here, we're actually told about a time in Israel's history where there's this dude named Shebna, all right, Shebna, good old Shebi. Uh, that's, the Bible doesn't actually call him that, but, it, but I, I called him that, Shebna, all right? So Shebna, apparently he was this dude who was considered the palace administrator. And what that meant was that he, uh, he worked for the king of Israel and he was basically given authority over administering all the palace affairs. And so he would, he would administrate those things. He had, he had the keys, essentially, to kind of the kingdom. And what we see here in Isaiah chapter 22 is that apparently this dude Shebna was actually pretty full of himself and was very prideful. And so God actually promised to take away from Shebna this authority and to give it to this other guy, this other guy named Eliakim or Eliakim. And so God promises, he says, I'm going to take, I'm going to take this, this responsibility from you, this authority from you, Shebna. I'm going to give it to this other guy, Eliakim. And I want you to notice here, what he says is, he says, I'm going to place on Eliakim, on his shoulder, the key to the house of David, is what he says. Now, again, 
once again, you're like, who's David? And what does it mean, the house of David? And so, um, and so let me just summarize real quick that in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, the house of David is actually like a shorthand way of referring to the kingdom of God. And so when someone said the house of David, that was referring to the city of God. It was referring to the temple of God, which is where the presence of God dwelt. It was, uh, it was uh, associated with the riches of God and the king. And so it was the place, get, get this, like the, the house of David was the place where God's rulership in heaven was discovered and was encountered and was established here on earth. And here's what I want you to notice. God says to this guy, this Eliakim guy, he says, I'm going to place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. Now, again, that seems super weird to us, right? Like, why would you put a key on someone's shoulder? Uh, I don't know about you, but when I can hand someone keys, I usually place them in their hands, not on their shoulder. What's that talking about? Okay, so uh, back in this time, in the Old Testament, uh, keys were not what you think of today. Uh, in t- Old Testament times, keys were often very large, usually made of wood or bronze, and then they were carried over the shoulder because they were super heavy. In fact, I'll just show you, this is actually an ancient inscription. It's a little pixelated because I couldn't find a super big picture of it, but this is a, uh, an ancient um, inscription that was actually found on a tablet, and it's a Greek woman who's carrying a bronze key. And so you can see she's, she's got that thing hoisted over her shoulder. Uh, here's another kind of picture. This is an artist rendition of, of how a person would have carried keys. It would have kind of threw them over their shoulder. So all that to say this, that, that the one who carried the keys, uh, what this is referring to is that is a person who had full access to all of the treasures of the kingdom and all of the treasures of the king. Right? This was the, the person who had the key was the one who had authority over the royal treasury. The person who had the key was the one who could open up the royal treasury and its riches and disperse them and dispense them as he wanted to. The person who had the key had full access to the resources, to the inhabitants of the king. And so, so all that to say, what does it mean when Jesus says about himself that he has the keys to David's house? What does that mean when he says that? Well, you got to see, it's an illustrative way of Jesus saying, listen, I hold the keys to the kingdom of God. I am, I am the one, basically Jesus is saying this, I am the one, and by the way, the only one, by which a person gains access and gains entry to the fullness of God's riches, to a relationship with God. And, uh, you know, I think maybe uh, kind of an easy way to think of it is here, here at our church building, at the Medina East Campus Church Building, if you've, if you've ever been here before, this might come as a surprise to you, but I actually don't have access to every room in this building. I don't. Uh, there's a number of, of, of rooms that are here that I can't access because uh, I, don't have, I don't have a key to get in there. So the mechanical room and the tech room and all those kind of things, which, by the way, you don't want me to have access to those things. But there is one person. There's one person on our team who does. And his name is Ramon. And uh, if you happen to know Ramon, he is our most excellent facilities manager, and he is just straight up awesome. I love this guy. But, but here, here's my point, is if you, if you wanted to gain full access to the, to the Medina East Campus building, right, where would you go? Well, you wouldn't come to me, and you, you wouldn't just go to someone who's around here. Uh, you would have to go to Ramon, because Ramon's got the keys. Now listen, this is the point that, that I think Jesus is making about himself. Jesus is saying he has the keys to God's kingdom. In other words, he's the only one who, who in which we gain access to the fullness in the presence of God. That because of his death and because of his resurrection, Jesus has opened the door to all that the living God is and all that the living God has. Now, I just got to tell you, 
that this actually brings up a critically important reality about Jesus. And so, so let me just try to say this as clear as I can. If you are a person who's investigating Jesus Christ, I think there's something that you need to know about Jesus's claims. And quite honestly, it, uh, it may even be a challenging aspect of Christianity. Uh, some people are offended by this aspect of Christianity, but I feel like it's important to be very clear about this. And it's this, it's that Jesus is, and Jesus claims to be, the exclusive way to God. Uh, Jesus is, is it. If you want to gain access to God, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know God, that is only possible through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has the keys. And I think, I think you know, as a lot of us know, we live in a culture, and really this is true, I think, of every culture in some way. We live in a culture where the message that Jesus is the only one who can unlock a relationship with God to us is sometimes a very, very tough pill to swallow. And if you think about this, I think, you know, if you've, if you've been with us in this series, why do you think that Jesus has to continually remind his churches to persevere? Why do you think that Jesus is always saying stuff like, um, like you're going to be persecuted because of me? Why do you think Jesus says stuff like stand firm in what I said and resist the pressure to dilute my word? Why is he saying that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but one major reason is in large part because of the radical exclusivity of the message of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, it can be very offensive to the world that we find ourselves in. You see, I think uh, if, you, if you're a person that says, I follow Jesus, I think, I think we all know this. If you, if you tell people that, I follow Jesus, most people are fine with that. Most people think that's, that's great. But it's when you say, I follow Jesus and I think he's the only way to God. Well, that can be really, really offensive. So I think a lot of people today maybe would say this. They'd say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and I like Jesus and I think his teaching is very insightful and I think that he definitely was an extremely important and special person. But, but come on, man. Like, certainly, certainly there are many ways to God. There's a lot of different ways to God. How narrow-minded and how arrogant and even bigoted it is to say that Jesus is the only way. He, he's the exclusive way to God. And yet, and yet, and yet, if you take Jesus' words seriously and you actually look at what he claimed about himself, I think you're going to see that, man, Jesus makes some <laughs> radically exclusive claims about himself. I'll just show you a couple of them. So this is in John 10. Jesus says, I am the gate. That's what he calls himself. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. So what's Jesus say there? He says, I'm the gate. I am the entryway. I, I am the, the means by which a person gains access to God. Uh, or how about John 14, 6, super famous passage. Jesus said, I am the, the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, you just hear the language of exclusivity that you see within this passage. And, and, so, and so all I'm saying is Jesus made some pretty radical claims about himself. And here I think we see the same idea. Jesus says, listen, I have the keys. And what I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can, can open. Jesus is saying, look, I, I have the keys. Nobody can open the door to access God but Jesus Christ. Nobody is able to do that. Nobody is worthy enough to open the door to access a relationship with God. But Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life, because of his death and his resurrection, he is exclusively qualified 
to close the door on sin and death and to open the door into access of God's forgiveness and his riches and his presence. It's a powerful thing Jesus says about himself. And so, so he says that. And then I want you to notice what he goes on to say to this church. He says um, to this church, he says, hey, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Um, now, before we dig into this a little bit, I'm not sure if you noticed this when we read through the whole letter, but this letter is actually pretty unique because there is uh, no criticism that Jesus gives to this church, right? Jesus only says good stuff to this church. Now, that's actually different than what we saw with most of the other churches, right? Most of the other churches, Jesus offers both criticism and commendation, or in some cases, he just offers criticism. But here at this church, Jesus offers only commendation. He's only got good things to say about this church. I want you to notice, real simple, he just says, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. Now, he doesn't elaborate very much on what their deeds were, but I would say this, I think that if you look at the other letters to the churches, which we've been looking at, and you compile Jesus's uh, commendations, you could probably presume that this church was probably growing and excelling at things like, so for example, uh, hard work and perseverance. Uh, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus and Thyatira for those things. My guess is this church is probably excelling in things like not tolerating wickedness, not tolerating false teaching, enduring persecution, loving God and loving others, right? Growing in their faith, serving, serving their community and serving all around. These are commendations that Jesus gives to the other churches. My guess is that we could probably assume that because Jesus looks at this church and says, you guys are doing a great job, most likely they're probably excelling in these things. And can I, can I just tell you something? I'll just tell you something I thought was really encouraging about this letter to Philadelphia. Um, as I was reading this, I was really encouraged because it struck me. It just, it just hit me. You know, you, I think we all know this. It's obvious to all of us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. There just isn't. For the obvious reason that there's no such thing as perfect Christians. That there's no such thing as perfect people. And a church is nothing more than a collection of really imperfect Christians. And I think because of that, that, that means that the church in and of itself is not perfect. No such thing as a perfect church leader. There's no such thing as a perfect life group. There's no such thing as, as any of those things. A perfect church because all of us fall short of the absolute standard of God. But here's something I find so encouraging about this letter to Philadelphia is that even though there's no such thing as a perfect church or a perfect church leader or a perfect group or a perfect leader, whatever it might be, it is still possible. It is still possible for a church and for those of us who follow Christ to be faithful and obedient and diligent and to please Jesus. I just think that's awesome. I think that's incredible. I find it encouraging because I'll just be honest, sometimes I, I can think that Jesus' standards are so high and are so impossible to meet that I can never please him. But I think what we see here is here's an imperfect church and Jesus has nothing but praises to give to them. I find that really encouraging. So what does that mean for us, for those of us who are part of Grace Church, for those of us who follow Jesus? I think it tells us that we can be a church that pleases Christ. We can be. We can be a church. Look, we can be that does what Jesus wants us to do. Not perfectly. No one gets it perfect. But increasingly, we can do that. It is possible. And like I said, I find it really encouraging. I also find it really stimulating. I also want you to notice Jesus, though, he doesn't, he doesn't just commend this church but he actually makes an amazing commitment to this church because of their faithfulness. So, so look what he goes on to say. He says, listen, I know your deeds. He says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. 
So I want you to check this out. This is so powerful. Jesus says to this church, he says, listen, you guys have kept my word and you have not denied my name. In other words, he says, you guys aren't perfect, but man, you guys are really going after it. You are, you are, you are committed to my word. You're committed to my name. And I want you to notice Jesus, because of this, he says to this church, he only gives them one exhortation, just one. And it's real simple. It's this. He says, so see. He says, because of your faithfulness, I just want you to, to look. Literally, some of you have different translations. It might say look, or if you have the King James Version, it might say behold. So Jesus says, hey, man, because of your faithfulness, I want you to look. And look what he says. He says, I want you to look. I want you to behold. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So Jesus says, hey, because you've been faithful to me, not perfect, but really strive, like really going for it, you know, being, trying to be the people who, who, who serve me and love me. He says, look, look, I am giving you an open door. Now, of course, we're like, what is that talking about? What does that mean, an open door? Well, can I just tell you that when we talk about this idea of an open door, there's actually two different opinions that people have about what this means. And so let me tell you what both of them are, and then I'll tell you what my opinion is for whatever that's worth. So in one sense, some, some scholars and theologians and commentators would say that this open door is referring to a door of salvation. Uh, and of course, what I mean by that is that Jesus is basically saying to these people, listen, I'm giving you full access to the kingdom of God, and no one can take that away from you. He, he's promising them salvation. Um, and so let, let me just say that that certainly, that certainly would have been meaningful to these Christians uh, in the city of Philadelphia because they were being ostracized and they were being ousted by this Jewish religious group that Jesus calls, you guys maybe saw it, the synagogue of Satan, which uh, that doesn't sound real, 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 like a real happy place to be. Uh, so without, without getting too much into to, to all of it, th this group, this, this group of uh, the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus called it, was basically, uh, was basically a religious group that slammed the door in the face of the church of Philadelphia. And they told them that they could never gain access to a relationship with God because they weren't doing enough and they weren't religious enough. But what Jesus says to this church is, no, I hold the keys and I am opening a door and no one can shut it. In other words, you're in, you're in. And so some people would think that maybe he's talking about a door of salvation. Others would say this, maybe he's actually talking about a door of opportunity, a door of opportunity. Uh, it's actually pretty interesting, this phrase, uh, open door, is actually used all throughout the New Testament. It's used in places like 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, and Colossians chapter 4. And it's always used to refer about an opportunity for a person to share the good news about Jesus. It's an opportunity for a church or an opportunity for a Christian to actually tell people about Jesus and about how awesome he is. And so uh, some people would say, yeah, it's a door of salvation. Some would say a door of opportunity. Um, here's my opinion, and I'm not alone in this. I actually think Jesus probably means both. I think he's actually probably talking about both of these things. I think it's fair to say that this church not only had the door of salvation open to them, but they were also given this incredible window of opportunity to invite and usher other people into that open door that he had for them. And let me just say that when I, when I think about this man, I, I think that has incredible implications because I think what Jesus is, is, is basically saying is this. I think Jesus is saying, listen, because of your faithfulness to me, church in Philadelphia. I'm going to make your church an open door. I'm going to make your church an open door. I'm going to make your church, your community, your life groups, your, I want to make it an access point and a connecting point for people to experience 
and for people to, to connect with the presence and the forgiveness and the love and the salvation of God. I think that what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to create an open door, a space here on earth where people can gain access to the God of heaven. It's a door between the kingdom of God and culture, I think is what he's saying. It's a place where people can come and encounter the presence of God, to be baptized into his community, to learn and to, 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 be, to begin a new life of following God and being part of his family. And I think what he's saying is, church, I think this is awesome. He's saying, listen, even though you're not perfect, he says, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to use you like that. I'm going to use you like that. And man, I tell you, that gets me fired up because I, I feel like what God is saying is I will use my faithful church to make a difference in this world. I'll tell you something else that really encourages me. I want you to notice what Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia. He says, I know, I know that you guys have little strength. He says, I know you have little strength. Now, I think that that's cool. Now, most likely when he says little strength, he's probably referring to the size of this church. Uh, like I said, this church was a very small congregation. And I want you to think about this for a minute. So here you have this small congregation. They were facing strong, maybe even fanatical opposition. And yet in the face of such opposition, I mean, I imagine that these guys maybe would have been tempted to like develop a huddle mentality. You know, like I'm guessing that these Christians maybe thought to themselves, we're small, we're experiencing persecution. Maybe we ought to just huddle up, lay low until the storm blows over. But yet in the midst of this, what's so cool is Jesus says basically to them, hey, no huddling, no huddling. Look, look, I have placed an opportunity right in front of you. You have an open door. You have a green light. And nobody, nobody can shut that opportunity down. No one can shut you down because I'm the one, Jesus says, who has opened up that door. And man, I, I've been saying, I just, I find that so empowering. Because I think, I think Jesus is saying to these Christians, listen, I'm giving you an opportunity that in and of yourself, you don't have the resources to accomplish. Right? You don't have the power. You, don't, you're, you are of little strength. But Jesus looks and he says, even though you're too weak to do it, I'm going to open the door. And because it's me who's opening the door, there's no one who can, who can shut it. And let me just ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, how, how many of us who follow Christ sometimes feel this way? We just recognize, man, we, we just have little strength. I'll tell you, I, I know I do. I do. Um, when I think sometimes about the magnitude of what Jesus has called me to and us to as a church and his followers, man, sometimes I'm just, I'm just like, how are we going to do it? You know, G Jesus said to his church that his church in Matthew 28, he said the church is to make disciples of all nations, effectively to reach the whole world. And I'm like, man, that's huge. Uh, Jesus, the, the Bible tells us that he commissions his church to be representatives of his love and to be representatives of his heart to the community that we live in, that we are to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and those who are in helpful situations. The Bible says that the church is, is actually supposed to be the hope of the world. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said that his primary way in which he was going to address the evils of the world was through the church. And, and I got to tell you, I hear all of that. And yet when I compare all what the church is and, and what I am to all that's happening in our world, sometimes I think it's easy to feel weak, to look around today and, and to see all these other things. I mean, think about it. When you look around in our society, what do you see? What do you see? Man, we see, we see high scale political 
conventions. Like, I don't know if you guys watched the national conventions over the past couple of weeks, but both of them, I mean, you have all this fanfare, this, this portrait of such immense and apparent power. Uh, you know, we look around, what do we see? We see celebrities, celebrities who seem to carry, man, so much, so much sway and so much influence. They have millions of followers on social media. We, we hear the voice sometimes, the loudest voice in our culture is oftentimes the media that we hear so loudly in our ears. And I think sometimes, I, I, for me, it's easy to think, well, what am I going to do? Like, well, who am I? You know, I'm not, I'm not a politician and I'm not a, I'm not a celebrity. And I don't, you know, I, I, my, vo- my voice is going to get lost. In the mid- Who's going to listen to my little voice? And says, sometimes I think it's easy for the church to look and say, we're just a little old church. Right? We're, just a little, we're just a little church in little podunk Medina, Ohio. Right? That's where we're at, Medina, Ohio. I don't know why I said it that way. It just felt appropriate. But, but you know, sometimes I could think about it. I could think, man, surely these other establishments have more influence to change the world than the church does. And if you want to change the world, you probably need to go to these other places to do it. And yet, Jesus says, no, the faithful church is the hope of the world. And by the way, I actually think that's the way it's always supposed to be. This seems to be pretty consistent. I was actually just thinking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think we see that this is God's MO. Look what he says. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. I'd say this passage reveals to us, this is Jesus' method. Jesus is always, always, always calling his followers and his church into a mission that is so far beyond our own resources because it forces us to rely and depend on him. And I just tell you, when a church is faithful to Jesus, like this church in Philadelphia, man, God opens the door. God opens the door. And listen to me. And when God opens the door, when Jesus opens the door, nothing can shut that door. Nothing. Listen, politics cannot shut that door. It, doesn't, it does not matter who was elected in November. That door won't shut. Critics can't shut that door. Listen, a pandemic can't shut that door. Hell itself can't shut the door because Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not stand against it. And let me just say, it's not because the church is strong. It's because Jesus is king. It's because he has the keys. He has the keys. And what he opens, no one can shut. Oh, man, gosh, I just, I wish we had more time because there's so much more to say about this this passage and this letter that Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia. But again, for time's sake, I have to summarize. But I do want to say, if you want to read more about the church in Philadelphia, one of the resources we keep recommending is this excellent book called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. Such a great book, and he has a whole chapter on the church in Philadelphia, which is just exceptional. I'd encourage you to pick that up. But to summarize, uh, what happens after this is Jesus basically goes on to say to this church that because of their faithfulness, he's now going to give to them his provision, he's going to give them his protection, and then he's going to give them a promise that they're going to reign with him forever and ever. And so Jesus closes this letter in the same way that he closes all of the other ones with these words. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to his churches. And that, of course, is an invitation for those of us who follow Jesus to listen to what he has to say too. 
So what about us? What about us today? Uh, what are some conclusions and some considerations that maybe we can take away from what Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia? Well, let me just give you three kind of quick ones. Here's the first one. I think what the church in Philadelphia shows us is that the best way that the church can influence the world is to just be the church, is to be a faithful church to Jesus Christ. The best way that the church can influence the world is to be the church. Listen, I think the church in Philadelphia is such a great encouragement and example to those of us who follow Christ, that if we just simply strive to do what Jesus has called us to do, that, that Jesus is the one who will open the door. And that the greatest thing that the church can give the culture is actually the church. Uh, there is nothing more powerful a church can do in a community than be the church that Jesus wants it to be. To be an alternative community with a distinct love and with distinct beliefs and with a distinct worship and a distinct servanthood, all centered around the distinct person of Jesus Christ. I think there's nothing greater than that. Listen, for those of us who follow Jesus, I, I just think it's important that we kind of understand this, that if we're called to be his church, I don't think Jesus' primary goal for us is to gain political influence. I don't think that's the primary goal. Now hear me, right? I, I do hope that many people who follow Jesus would be involved in politics. I definitely hope that that's the case. But, but I think that our main goal is, is not primarily to be on the cutting edge and on the front end of politics. In the same way, listen, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, our goal given by Christ is not to, is not to somehow you know, reclaim Hollywood. Just, it was never ours in the first place, right? Now again, my hope is that there's plenty of people who follow Jesus who are involved in movies and in media, for sure. But listen, our goal is to be the church that Jesus wants us to be the church that follows his mission, the church that follows his message and is committed to it, the church that makes disciples of all nations, the church that prays and worships and serves each other and serves the community and witnesses, just like Jesus said. And I think that's the best thing we can do. I love the way one uh, author put it. His name is Eugene Peterson. He said it this way. This was so good. He said, following Jesus is long obedience in the same direction. I like that. Long obedience in the same direction. I think what that means is that to follow Christ and to be the church he wants us to be means to just genuinely strive to know and live out Jesus's desires every day. No matter what the circumstance is, we just keep doing the things that Jesus said. And if we do that, I think that that's the best thing we can give to the world because Jesus said that's what changes the world. Secondly, Jesus, I, I think Philadelphia teaches us that Jesus uses the church that stays faithful to his message and to his mission. Philadelphia is such a good example of this that, uh, that really the, the church that Jesus wants to use is the church that's, that's just fully committed to what he said and to the mission that he gave to us. Now, I think this is so true. I think a healthy Christian and a healthy church are those that are on mission with Jesus's message. I love uh, Max, Max Licato. He's a famous author. He actually told a story one time about how his dad took um, him and one of his friends on a fishing trip. And I guess when they got to the place that they were going to fish, it was all rain and snow. And so they had to spend an entire week cooped up uh, in this camper, uh, in this, this camper truck or whatever. And so he talked about how when they were in this camper, they just bickered and they griped and they complained and fought with each other. And he said something I thought was really, really insightful. Here's what he said. He said, I learned a hard lesson that week, uh, not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. I like that. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. 
Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bah humbug spirituality. Beady eyes searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the, their nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches, poor testimonies, broken hearts, legalistic wars. And sadly, poor go unfed, confused go uncounseled, the lost go unpreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. The next time the challenges outside tempt you to shut the door and stay inside, stay long enough to get warm, and then get out. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. I really like that. You know, I think, I think what Jesus is saying to his church here is he's saying to the church in Philadelphia, even though it's challenging and even though you're small, and even though you think you're weak, you have an open door in front of you. And for, and for those of us who follow Christ, you know, I understand right now, in this season, it might feel that way sometimes. It can feel like a storm that we just want to huddle up and hunker down and just let the storm pass and just kind of endure through it. But man, I just tell you, maybe we need to examine our own heart. And maybe for those of us who follow Jesus, we need to ask, what open door has God opened because of the situation that we find ourselves in right now? What, who is it that maybe God is asking you to extend love to, to serve, to pray for, to talk to them about Jesus? It's an awesome thing for us to think about. And here's the last thing I'd say. is uh, I think the last conclusion is um, to accept the free gift of forgiveness and salvation from Jesus and become part of his church. Let me just say, if you're a person investigating Christ, you know, I feel like I would, I would just, I'd be missing the opportunity if I didn't invite you to follow Jesus, to, to just put your trust and your hope in him. Um, listen, there's an open door to you, and it's an invitation. It's, Jesus is the only one who holds the keys to a relationship with God and to the forgiveness of sins. And I would encourage you, if you've never started a relationship with him, maybe commit to follow him. Maybe do that even now. You could pray to him. You could talk to him just between you and him right now. You can do that. You don't. There's not like a, some kind of magical formula or like some kind of weird seance prayer. You just talk to him. And you can say, I, I, I believe you are the way to God and I want to commit myself to you. I, I receive your forgiveness of sins. I admit that I need your forgiveness and I want to follow you. You can just talk to him. Let me just say, when you do that, when you put your faith in Christ, you actually become part of his church. And let me say that when you're part of his church, you are part of much, much more than a religious gathering or a social club. You're part of Jesus's movement to save the world. And Jesus is inviting us into a deep purpose for our life here and now. It's an open door to take part in something that's eternal. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you again for, man, this uh, encouraging letter to this amazing church in Philadelphia. And God, I know I'm encouraged, and I just, I want to be found faithful like these people were found faithful. So thank you for even the encouragement that this passage brings to, to us to, to, as we read this, Lord. God, I want to pray that, uh, would you help us? Would you help us to not simply hoard the open door that you've given to those of us who follow you, but help us to share and to invite other people to see the amazing relationship that's available because of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are the way. And, uh, and so we want to come to you and recognize that, uh, that that's true. I want to declare that right now. I want to pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.